Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and those of my listeners who live in Canada will already be aware that it is very likely that we are going to see an election before the year 2021 is out, and that the result of that election is extremely likely to see Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the most pro-abortion Prime Minister in Canadian history, get re-elected once again. Now, one of the things I've written about quite a bit over the past couple of years is why Justin Trudeau himself is so passionate about abortion. And I actually believe that in order to understand why our current prime minister is as passionate about abortion as he is, you have to go back and take a look at his family. Now, when I say he's passionate about abortion, I'm not saying that he's some run-of-the-mill pro-choice, pro-abortion politician or, you know, a left-wing politician who thinks he has to support abortion in order to get the support of the left. I mean that Justin Trudeau is genuinely animated by the issue, that he seeks every opportunity to expand Canada's abortion regime, that he takes taxpayer dollars and ships them overseas in unprecedented amounts to fund abortion in developing countries, including countries where abortion is not wanted and where abortion is illegal. This is an issue that when he is challenged on it in the House of Commons, he actually gets angry. He starts shouting. Abortion is something he deeply cares about. And one of the many reasons for this is the fact that abortion in Canada is the Trudeau family legacy to a large extent. His father, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, who is the one Prime Minister primarily responsible for bringing the sexual revolution to Canada and lived that revolution out in his own private life to the hilt, was instrumental in decriminalizing abortion in 1969 and then bringing the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which could be used by the courts to find rights where none had previously existed. One of the things very few people know about as well is that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's mother, Margaret Trudeau, actually aborted his half-sibling prior to his own birth, a fact that I didn't find in some muckraking tabloid. It's something that she actually told a magazine in an interview herself. This is a matter of public record. So when you look at the Trudeau family history, abortion is a very significant part of it. One of the things that I wanted to do in, in seeking to understand a bit more about how Canada got to where it is, being one of the most radical abortion regimes in the world, was to interview a couple of veteran pro-life activists who have been around since the beginning of the pro-life fight. And the first person I want to interview with an eye to that is Gwen Landl, who is the current uh, National Vice President of Real Women of Canada, and initially founded that organization in 1983. It's an organization committed to the protection uh, of the traditional family and human life, both in Canada and internationally. Gwen herself is an expert. She's written extensively on constitutional issues, in particular the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. She's uh, partaken in many cases before the Supreme Court of Canada on pro-life and pro-family issues. And for the purposes of our discussion, she's also met personally with Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and has a lot of insights into how Canada became the pro-abortion regime that it is. She also has a fascinating book that I got a couple of years ago called Pierre Elliott Trudeau's Great Betrayal, which forms the basis of this conversation. So without further introduction from me, this is my conversation with veteran pro-life activist and founder of Real Woman of Canada, Gwen Landold. So just to begin, perhaps you can tell our listeners a little bit about how you first got involved in the pro-life movement, because you were one of the earliest pro-life activists, and according to historian Michael Wagner, you're one of the three key figures on the Canadian Christian right very early on. 
Well, I had been living in the United States with my husband. I was doing postgraduate work there, and I didn't really know what was going on in the abortion issue. But I came back to Canada in 1971, and we were in Toronto, and I found out what the law was, and I was rather shaken. And But I didn't do anything initially about it. What happened is that the it, it just troubled me until one day I was watching TV, and it was the CBC, and some feminists got on and saying, quote, the government should have no right to my body, and, and I have a right to choice. And I was indignant because I said, that isn't correct, because I went to law school. In law school, I learned the unborn child could inherit property and could be recognized. And I was indignant, so I did something I've never done in my life before. I called the producer next morning, objecting to, you know, this really false information. And he tried to get rid of me by saying, oh, well, if you don't like it, you write something and we'll, we'll see what we can do. I knew very well that he was putting me off. But on the other hand, I said, since I've objected, I have to write something. So what I did was I went over to Oscar Law School Library and spent a day researching the law on abortion. And that's really what set me off. It was the injustice to the unborn child because I could find case law that indicated the child was going to become more and more recognized. And I was very disturbed by what I read. So I decided that, you know, perhaps I should write something up, which I did, and which the producer ignored, which I expected. But it really was what led me to be concerned. And at that time, it was about 1971, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau had set up a joint committee to go across country to talk about a constitutional change. And it was in March of 1971. And I decided that I would appear before the Constitutional Committee in Toronto with a brief explaining legally and constitutionally why the unborn child should be protected. But before I appeared, the month previously, I had organized the Toronto Right to Life organization. I was appalled to find that the largest uh, city in Canada and the broadcast center of Canada had no pro-life group. So I decided that I would try and organize someone. But since I had just returned to Canada, I didn't know a soul in Toronto. But fortunately, I had a friend in Ottawa who had been involved in the pro-life movement there. And I contacted them and asked for a list of Toronto residents who I could contact. So I organized a meeting of all these people. Number 28 brave souls showed up in a rainy, miserable day in February of 1971, and it was really a cross-section of Canadian society. There were obstetrician, there was myself as a lawyer, there was a construction worker, there was a teacher, there was a housework. All of them seemed to be called somehow to get involved. And so that night, we formed the Toronto Right to Life. And on the basis of the Toronto Right to Life, I applied to appear before the Constitutional Committee, explaining why there was a constitutional right to protect the unborn child. And that was the beginning. The Toronto Right to Life was one of the few pro-life groups at that time in Canada. 
And so I really had no idea what to do. We hadn't a penny. We had a handful of members and uh, we decided to be really, really living dangerously. We rented a little office, one room office in downtown Toronto for the vast sum of $100 a month. And I remember thinking, how will we ever get that much money? But anyway, we did. And we sat on cardboard boxes for a month or two because we didn't have any furniture. But that was the beginning of my involvement. And then eventually I could see people were, you know, there were People were contacting Toronto Right to Life from across the country. Then I realized we need to have a national voice and organize all these, you know, people from Settler, Alberta or, or Halifax. And so that's why we became a national. We formed the National Alliance for Life. And it was based on the membership of people who had, who had initially been involved in Ottawa. And we became Alliance for Life National, and I became president of it. One thing I did do in my ignorance is that I decided we better be tax exempt and be able to receive more money. I didn't realize. And so I applied. And at that time, the, the Canadian CRA did not know how evil pro-life people were. And so they gave us our tax exempt status. But very few, I think one group in Windsor managed to scrape under the line and got the tax exempt status. But after that, we were never able to get a tax exempt status. But with the tax exempt status, we were not supposed to be politically involved. And I rapidly learned that we had to have a voice politically, you know, that we could become politically involved. So I began to be organized with the, the Campaign Life Coalition for Life. I started work I organized with them to get the political arm going, which was essential. And of course, both the Toronto Right to Life and the Campaign Life are flourishing today. To my great joy, fine, fine people took over. And then I became involved again in 1980 when Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, announced we need a new constitution. And I knew right away with the Charter of Rights it would transform Canada tremendously because it would mean a handful of appointed judges will be making decisions on social issues, which certainly turned out to be the case. And so I thought we better get in on the bottom floor and demand that in the Charter of Rights be protection for the unborn child. And we did everything humanly possible. Campaign life is magnificent. They may not have understood the constitutional implications, but they trusted my judgment on it, which was fortunate. But then one day again on CBC, I heard these radical feminists saying very, very ponderously, the women of Canada demand that there be abortion on demand in the charter. Well, of course, that set me off like you wouldn't believe. And I said, who are these twits trying to tell me? And nobody asked my opinion. So as a result of that, I then organized Real Women of Canada, which is a pro-life, pro-family women's organization, which would offset the radical feminists. And it's still going, thank goodness, and I'm still involved with that. But it, that's really, it was 
when I went to law school, there were three women and 110 men, and I was the quietest person in the world. I never spoke a word in three years of law school, but one of my classmates said, boy, when you graduated, did you ever get busy? And it was not that I ever wanted to be. I was perfectly happy not to be politically or an activist, but somehow it was the injustice for the unborn child that made me feel I must do something. And with my background as a lawyer, but also as a mother of five young children, I think I I was a good um, candidate to speak out because I wasn't afraid because I had the legal background. And also as a mother, I knew a thing or two about babies and birth. And, And being a woman was very important at that time as well. So that's really... I have no reason to wonder why it just happened. I seemed to be at the place when it had to be done and I did what I could. And I'm still, still at it and haven't stopped at this point. Because there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast uh, who are pro-life and have been in the movement for either decades or, or for like myself, you know, even if we've been involved for, you know, 15 years, you've been involved since long before we were born. And one of the things I'm always interested in hearing about is what were the early days like, not just the political and historical context, but what was the pro-life movement like in the early 1970s? What are just some of your memories of the atmosphere of that time? My memories, I think most positively, are the wonderful people, you know, was it seemed to come out of the woodwork, people who seemed to be as concerned as I was, you know, it could be a a teacher in in Saskatchewan, it could have been a a housewife in, in, you know, anywhere, but they would contact and the goodness of the people and they would organize. They seemed to be as, as, as driven to protect the unborn. Politically, I think it was easier during the 1970s because so many of the members of parliament And in the 80s, we're pro-life at that time. And I think now they're scarcer than they used to be. One, because they don't dare to speak out against the politically correct. At that time, many of the MPs, liberal MPs, conservative, and there was one or two NDPs in them, members of NDP who were pro-life. And they were not at that time compelled by party policy are by their leaders to to shut up on the abortion issue, which they are now. They're not allowed to express an opinion. So in that sense, it was easier. But I think it was just ordinary Canadians who knew that something was wrong and that there had to be protection for the unborn. Certainly when the charter came out, and we, you know, spoke against uh, the charter and as it protected the unborn child because we knew that the court would strike down the law, which it did. But people maybe never understood the political and the constitutional implications, but they trusted our judgment that we knew what we were doing and they put their heart and soul into trying to change the you know, the charter to protect the unborn. I can't tell you there were parades, there were demonstrations. Every time the provincial premiers met with Trudeau, there would be a demonstration outside to protect the unborn. We'd say, save the unborn, defeat the charter. They'd have signs. There were letters to the editor. We did everything with religious organizations asking 
for support. Gwen, if we just back up a little bit, because some of the listeners, I I know what you're referring to when you talk about the campaign against the charter, but a lot of pro-lifers my age and younger won't actually be fully aware of this campaign. So just to put this in historical context for those who are listening, when Trudeau came forward and said there was a new charter of rights and freedoms, a lot of pro-lifers think now, well, you know, the charter is a good thing because, you know, the charter is basically Canada's civil religion at this point. So why was the pro-life movement led by yourself and others so opposed to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, just so people understand the context of this campaign? Canada has always raised on the British parliamentary system that human rights were protected. They were unwritten rights since the Magna Carta. And Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, lied to the public and said you could lose your rights, no freedom of speech, um, freedom of of, uh, religion, but we're going to put it in a charter that cannot be changed by legislation. And that was uh, hypocrisy in his part, because as a lawyer, he knew that human rights were inviolable. And we saw that in Britain for all these centuries since Magna Carta, they never removed any human rights. But Trudeau misled the public, saying it's wonderful, you're going to have your human rights protected. I mean, they already were thoroughly, utterly protected through the centuries. But he misled them. And we knew that the fundamental flaw in the Charter of Rights is that Parliament would be subject to the opinion of nine appointed judges on the Supreme Court of Canada. In other words, under the wording of the charter, it said that if the judges found that something was unconstitutional, therefore it could be, it had to be changed to the dictates of the charter, of the judges. But who determined what was constitutional and wasn't the same nine judges would decide what was constitutional and what wasn't constitutional. And we knew how extraordinarily dangerous it would be because the public would no longer have a voice in the administration of justice. What we knew was that these nine appointed judges would decide what they wanted according to their own philosophy, their own uh, particular personal beliefs, and we couldn't lobby them. Whereas with the MPs in Parliament, we could talk to them and argue with them and debate them and and put forward reasoned arguments to protect the unborn. But with these nine appointed individuals, many who had their own very left-wing opinion, and we have most of the nine judges in the Supreme Court of Canada are adamantly left-wing, promoting their own personal agenda, you couldn't say anything, you couldn't do anything because they were impervious to public opinion. So that was the danger we foresaw, that we would lose a voice to protect the unborn because the judges would be deciding what was a human right, right to life, and not the MPs. And that was the major danger that we saw. And when we would explain it to our members across the country, they knew with all their heart and soul that we were speaking the truth that danger was was there uh, hovering over the unborn with Trudeau's new Charter of Rights. And of course, in January of 1988, the Supreme Court of Canada preemptively shut down the abortion law, closed it off, and and said, no, it wasn't um, constitutional. We knew that would happen. 
And so it's been a struggle since then because we've got these judges impervious to common sense uh, and impervious to understanding human life and, and dignity of human life in charge of the agenda. And it's not not the not that the public no longer has a say. And so that is the danger that's come to pass that we foresaw. We tried to get, you know, the other face involved. The Catholic bishops, unfortunately, at that time, retained a lawyer suggested by Trudeau. They recommended, Trudeau had recommended they get a lawyer to determine about the abortion issue in the Charter of Rights. And of course, because it was recommended by Trudeau, I can tell you it was a pro-liberal lawyer. And the lawyer did a brief for the Catholic Council Bishop, and he said that the unborn would not be lose its right to life under the charter, which was nonsense. And that was Trudeau's line. And he had the whole Department of Justice saying, oh, no, no, the abortion issue won't be affected by the charter. Parliament will still be able to decide, you know, the, the law. And because of this decision by this judge, from the, uh, this uh, lawyer from the University of Ottawa, because of his decision, which the Council, Canadian Council of Catholic Bishops accepted, you know, the, the bishops did not fight for the unborn child. They relied on this presumptuous lawyer to um, give them advice. And we kept explaining other lawyers. It wasn't just myself. Some of the outstanding lawyers was David Daler, a lawyer in Ottawa, John Stevens, a lawyer in Toronto. We would all emphatically we went to the pro-life caucus of mps explaining how the justice department trudeau and the Canadian council of catholic bishops lawyer were all wrong and they ignored us and said well you know we were biased we didn't understand i even met the deputy minister of justice with one pro-life mp who was concerned about the issue and his name is garnet bloomfield who was an ardent Baptist, and he said it grew up being anti-Catholic, but he sure wanted the Catholics on his side when it came to the Charter. And Garner was called in by Trudeau to vote for, because he did, Trudeau wanted every one of his liber, liberal MPs to unanimous, unanimously vote for the Charter. And Garnet said no, as a Christian, he could not, because he had severe doubts about the protection of the unborn. So Trudeau arranged for Mr. Bloomfield, Garner Bloomfield, to go to the deputy minister who had drafted the legislation. And he asked me to go with him. And I went with the deputy minister and Garnet, and I pleaded with him, tried to explain to him, and I saw nothing but impervious. You know, he knew what was best. The liberal government knew what was best. And he just simply rejected all the legal arguments that I put forward. And because I knew then that we had lost, that the, you know, when the Deputy Minister of Justice and, and Trudeau called in any errant MP who was going to vote for the Charter, I knew that they were just hell bent to get the Charter without protection for the unborn child. But we did the best we could under the circumstances. Did you ever meet Pierre Trudeau personally or see him in action? Oh, yeah, many times. <laughs> I was a lucky girl. 
I was had meetings with him over the years. One of the things the pro-life movement did was we did have a petition for one million signatures, and the signatures were from every faith. We worked like the Dickens, but we got a million signatures, never done before in the history of Canadian politics, and we presented it to Trudeau and to the Liberal government. And I've met Trudeau that day. I've met Trudeau maybe half a dozen times over the abortion issue, and he never said much. I guess the word was supercilious. He knew better. And uh, he knew what he was doing, and anybody was ignorant but him. I found that Trudeau always said even his MPs he couldn't stand. He said there were no nothings when they left the Parliament Hill. I don't think he respected human beings. He didn't respect others. He just knew what he was going to do and was using his office to impose his vision of Canada on everyone. And there's been so many fallouts from that, not only abortion, national energy policy. It's his son, Justin, is just as arrogant and will not listen to the public because we're all ignorant and stupid because we're descending from his views. But uh, Pierre Tudor was not going to accommodate anyone, just himself and his small coterie of elites, mostly from Quebec who had in their own mind decided that they were going to bring in the charter, but not protect the unborn. Trudeau did say that he was very concerned about the pro-life movement, however. He said, we may defeat the charter. He said, we started out as like a little snowball, and we were growing every day, every day. And unless he stopped us, he would may lose the charter because many of the MPs were beginning to listen to us. What happened then, Charter had, Mr. Trudeau had a solution, and his solution was to bring Cardinal Carter on side. And if Cardinal Carter of the Archdiocese of Toronto would agree to the Charter of Rights, then all the Catholics would go along with him, and also all the faiths would go along with him. And so every Wednesday morning, when there'd be a caucus meeting, <clears throat> Trudeau would come in announce how he was lobbying Cardinal Carter to accept the charter. And then finally, in April of 1980, Cardinal Carter did accept the charter. And of course, it was devastating to us because we knew that once Cardinal Carter had, had okayed it, I personally asked Cardinal Carter, why did you agree to accept the charter without protection for the unborn child? And Cardinal Carter said, well, because all the lawyers in the Justice Department and it's going to be protected. And I said, no, it's not. And what you've done is devastated the whole pro-life movement by your accepting of the charter. We even notified the Vatican. We had some sources that we have John Paul II was the Pope objecting to what Cardinal Carter accepting the charter without protection for the unborn and our letter was delivered to, to Pope John Paul two days before our, he was attempted assassination in St. Peter's Square. And he took a year to recover. And about a year later, after the charter had been passed, he was well enough. And he sent us a letter saying, you know, thanking us for our effort and our work. 
and blessing us. But it, the, die, the die was cast. The charter had been passed at that time, but he was incapacitated for the whole year and he couldn't do anything if he even wanted to, I don't know, but to stop the situation of the Catholic Church not taking a strong enough stand against it. There were very, very fine Protestant leaders who did take a stand, uh, outstanding men, but we just didn't get the support from the Catholic Council of Bishops because they were misled by a legal opinion of a liberal lawyer. And it, it's strange how destiny changes by what, such an insignificant thing, but that's what happened. When you uh, spoke with Pierre Trudeau about abortion personally, it's interesting reading the biographies of him now. He was this weird schizophrenic who attended mass regularly and, and did more than any other prime minister to bring the sexual revolution to Canada in all of its forms. Did you get the sense that he was a sort of a Kennedy Cuomo politician who managed to erect a uh, sort of impenetrable barrier between his private life and his public life? Or do you think that he was always pro-choice to begin with? No, he was not pro-choice to begin with. We researched that carefully. He gave a pub- several public speeches saying he thought the, the, quote, fetus should have protection. But he said, I believe it is a human being or something equivalent to that. But I do not think I should impose my views as a politician. It was he who brought in that separation concept of of the separation between what you personally believed and what you did as a politician. But truly, Pope John Paul has said, you cannot separate your beliefs if you're a politician. They're integral part of you as a person. But Trudeau had that concept. It's not up to me to decide And he also came up with the absolute insane statement that the state has no right in in the bedrooms of the nation, which it means means crazy. I mean, that was asinine because, I mean, the state couldn't stop a murder, couldn't stop, you know, harassment or assault in a bedroom. The state does have an interest in the bedroom. And Trudeau kept thinking, well, it's only a personal, he argued, it's only a personal decision, but it was not. It's the killing of the unborn was a matter of most public morality. You don't kill and without being responsible for it. And the certainly the golden thread to our British system of justice has always been that everyone is of equal value, absolutely everyone, and that you can be a, a, a king or you can be a prime minister or you can be a drunken skid row, but your life is valuable. But what happened under Trudeau, he thought that you could cut and, and snip that golden thread protecting human life, starting with the unborn. And we kept saying, of course, what about the handicap? What about euthanasia? We knew what was coming down the road. But Trudeau was, I would call, an intellectual snob. When I spoke to him, I must have met him six, seven times. And he was, you know, supercilious is a good word. He knew. He was well-informed. And any, and it, I don't think it was just the general great unmarshed public were irrelevant to him. He was leading us as we should be led with his great mind, but he was arrogant man, and he never really had an understanding 
about people. And he had concepts, like his vision, you could separate your personal morality from your public. He had this idea that, you know, that, of course, the unborn, he thought, was a human being. He didn't agree with it, killing. But, you know, he wasn't responsible for the law. And unfortunately, the Minister of Justice was John Turner, who also was a Catholic. And John Turner should have known better. But he kept saying, well, because we decriminalized uh, abortion under the 69 Amendment, it didn't mean that the unborn wasn't protected. And I thought, what on earth is that man talking about? He's supposed to be a lawyer? And he was ignorant. I mean, or lying. I don't know. He certainly misrepresented the law and understanding of it. Now, what's interesting when you point out that, you know, Pierre Trudeau, who is still considered, of course, by, by the Canadian left to be one of the sort of luminous figures in Canadian history, is that at that time, the Canadian pro-life movement is, is very small now compared to how big it was in, in the 70s and the 80s. And there was some really luminous figures on the pro-life side. Marshall McLuhan, for example, was not only pro-life, as you know, but also advocated in his letters for the airing video footage of abortion on TV, because he believed that if people could see an abortion in progress, it would it would it would change their minds. Malcolm Muggeridge came to Canada in the 70s and did a speaking tour on abortion, which he thought was one of the greatest threats to Western civilization. And so there was a real from the other people I've talked to, there was a real heady feeling in the late 70s and in the 1980s, it's really a real feeling that we could win. You know, some of the, the greatest intellectual heavy hitters of our day are on our side, making our case. What was that like? Did you meet these people yourself? What was the atmosphere like? Marsha McLuhan, bless his heart, would come to our meetings of the Toronto Right to Life. And he was the one who said to us, we want the pictures of abortion to be made public because he equated it to the Vietnam War and the Meili massacre when you saw this child who was being napalmed and how it affected turned public opinion. And he kept saying to us, you must make this public. You must let people see the horror of abortion. I spoke to Malcolm Malcolm Muggeridge, and he was very pro-life. He became a Catholic, I think, under Mother Teresa. And he said, you know, that, that I, I asked him the question, why is the media so left-wing and pro-abortion? And, because of course, he was a journalist for many years. And he said, because we're attracted, journalists are attracted to the left-wing. They don't want any controls. They don't want anything to inhibit them. And they want the so-called freedom to do whatever they want. And I remember he said to me, I was just like them at one time. He said, if I'd been asked to cover the crucifixion, I would have come away with a story about this nut who was killed between two thieves. I would have missed the whole purpose of the crucifixion because I was locked into the the journalist concept of left-wing freedom. And he said, I would never understood the, the majesty and magnificence of the crucifixion. I would have thought, well, who's this guy anyway? He said, and I always think about that. It's because we're, the media is attracted 
to the left because they want freedom. They don't want any controls. And he, as he said, I was just one of them at one time until I converted and had a faith. Now, what's what's really interesting about about the media angle, and I wanted your opinion on that because I, I've I've gone through the archives and a lot of old right to life offices, and I've gone through all the old media coverage. And as bad as the media coverage was then, it's it's far worse now, of course. But one of the interesting things is there was a lot of pictorial evidence very early on for what abortion did. And not only pictures of the babies retrieved from dumpsters in the United States, like baby Malachi, pictures uh, taken by Operation Rescue, which are still, I believe, used by, by Show the Truth in Canada each summer. But also pictures like the black and white photograph of the garbage bag full of aborted babies from a hospital right, right there in Toronto. And the media traditionally had had this sort of, if it bleeds, it leads response to news. And with abortion, you had all of the sort of sordid makings of, of, of the sorts of stories that the media usually liked, right? It was, it's, it's sex, murder, innocence, it's, it's everything in, in, one, in, in one group. But except for that famous series by the Chicago Sun-Times exposing the practices of, of a lot of abortionists, the media was almost entirely silent on the brutality of abortion. And so in your experience of the 70s, 80s, and, and, and early 90s, was this a deliberate attempt by the media to cover up what was happening in abortion clinics because of their ideological predisposition? Or was this just simple laziness? Because I find a lot of times with journalists, it is the fact that they're too lazy to chase down the story. First of all, I should say there was an exception to the media. One was the Toronto Sun the editor was, you know, would, would raise questions about this. He would, he would, the Toronto Sun, even today, is much more thoughtful on the issue. But the leading newspaper in Canada, it's equivalent at that time, was the Toronto Star. It was equivalent to the impact that the New York Times has on media in the United States. The, the Toronto Star was, was um, a huge paper at that time and was very much the leader in the media. And I w- met personally with the editors about saying, you're biased. I mean, at least they met with me, and I would speak with them. And what I found is that they were uh, involved with, with the progressive thought on feminism. And they, feminists, of course, thought that uh, mistakenly that if you got abortion, they'll be equal to men, which is nonsense. And they were covering up for the feminists and supporting the feminists, I found, that they, they wanted abortion, so therefore they would go with it. And they were progressive, quote-unquote progressive. They were the leading voice in Canada for abortion. You know, they, they would report occasionally there was a caucus within the Walter Dinsdale was a conservative MP from Brandon who formed a pro-life caucus trying to object to the abortion issue. And they would, they would publicize that, but they were covering up for abortion because they were progressive. You know, as, as Mugridge said, they were, they were progressives, you know, and they, they believed this is a new way. This is a feminist women's own body. It was nonsense. I mean, they never thought they never had the intellectual capacity. I think they were just superficial going with the flow. They figured that would sell and everybody, and they did everything to encourage public sentiment to support abortion. But we would try. I mean, we certainly would do everything humanly possible I met with the Globe and Mail. 
which was another important newspaper in Canada at that time, and perhaps perhaps today, unfortunately, they but they they were not interested. They because we were not progressive. We were holding back the future, and they never had the intellectual depth to understand of the damage they were doing to human life, not just to the unborn, but they never understood what was going to come down the line, you know, that once you lost respect for human life and the unborn, it would be all society would be affected. Now, just to to give the listeners a bit of a framework uh, for the way Canadian abortion history unfolds, we have abortion decriminalized in in 1969. We have the abortion caravan going from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver to Ottawa in 1970, where uh, a group of feminists dump a black coffin filled with so-called illegal abortion instruments on Pierre Trudeau's front steps and then shut down Parliament for the first time in Canadian history. You have the founding of of Toronto Right to Life. You have an upswell of a pro-life movement, the Campaign for a Million Signatures, which you and many others worked on. You have uh, Real Women, Toronto Right to Life, Campaign Coalition, all of these pro-life organizations working to defeat the Charter and ultimately failing due to uh, due to the collaboration of, of, of a lot of prominent Catholic clergy people. And then concurrent to all of this, you have Henry Morgenthaler's Campaign of Civil Disobedience, where he's basically performing illegal abortions in order to challenge the law so that he can force the legalization of abortion. And you have him getting, for example, convicted in Quebec, but a jury essentially just refusing to punish him. So you basically have a breakdown of of the judicial process in which the courts are refusing to enforce Canadian law. What was that challenge like for for the pro-life movement? Because when I read uh, your book and I read other books on this period, most of the the action is primarily political, right? On the charter, on the petition and all that. And then you get Henry Morgenthaler and the genius of his campaign is that he was using the tactics of actual social reformers by utilizing civil disobedience, which made him very difficult to combat because what were you really supposed to do? You couldn't shut down. His clinic was already illegal. So it wasn't like you could, you could shut it down. He was already not supposed to be doing it. So what do you remember of that period? How, how are you involved in, in trying to respond to basically the challenge Henry Morgenthaler posed to Pro-Life Canada? For one thing, the papers were full of, the Globe and Mail was full of Morgenthaler and his noble work of doing abortion. Pro-Life people would be picketing his clinic down in Montreal, but they never mentioned that. And they promoted him and promoted him and promoted him. The Winnipeg Free Press, all the newspapers were saying what wonderful thing he was doing. And we were terrible because we were objecting. It was a difficult time. The The Minister of Justice at the time of Morgenthaler, when he was breaking the law, was Ron Basford who is from British Columbia, and I, Ron Basford, was pro-abortion. There's no two ways about it. And he, the jury had initially said that he was guilty. And, and the law at that time is you can't overturn a jury decision. Ron Basford, the Minister of Justice, changed the law to say that a jury decision can be over, overturned by a court. He did that deliberately because he was pro-abortion. He was a significant person at that time. The, the difficulty was that the media 
you've got. Morgenthaler was promoted as a great hero for, quote, women, and we never had the leverage in order to promote our position, even though they were prominent people, but they were all dismissed as, you know, eccentrics. You know, Mudridge or, or Marshall McLuhan were all eccentric. That's okay. But, and we were eccentric because we were trying our best to, to promote a cause. But then you had key people who were so pro-abortion, editors of the newspaper, reporters, you know, that we, we never had the leverage to overcome that. We tried. We had one thing on our side, which was ordinary people, grassroots Canadians, who instinctively knew that something was wrong, but they never had any leverage either. Now, one of the the really interesting, almost blips in Canadian pro-life history is you have the 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 Morgenthaler decision in 1988, and then for a couple of years there, you actually have the rise of civil disobedience exercised not by Morgenthaler and the abortion crowd, but exercised by the pro-life crowd. So a lot of younger pro-lifers are totally unaware of the fact that at one point you had up to 40,000 people in the streets of Toronto to shut down the Morgenthaler Clinic and to protest abortion. Like, 40,000 is roughly like double the highest number of people who have attended the Ottawa March for Life in the last 15 years. So it's really just an astronomical number. And, and, and these, these crowds were, were sort of marshaled in just a, a handful of days. You had people like Joan Andrews come down from the United States with the rescue movement, u- utilizing civil disobedience down there to Canada to help kick it off here. And then the rescue movement got killed pretty quickly in the U.S. in, in Canada, because unlike in the U.S., judges post massively onerous fines and jail sentences on many people, knowing that this was the easiest way to nip it in the bud because they had families and they needed to make a living. Um, people like John Hoff and others have told me about, you know, getting arrested, strip search, sentenced to jail for, for over a month because the Canadian judges looked south of the border, saw that this rescue movement had lasted for years, over 70,000 arrests in the U S and thought not here. We're going to nip this bud, like nip this in the bud quickly. So were you there when there was 40,000 people in Toronto? Can you share, just give us a bit of detail. Like when was this? Share the details because most people don't know about this stuff. We didn't have any difficulty getting people there. What had happened, the police had gone in, raided Morgan Teller's illegal abortuary and charges were laid. But we had people coming from all across Canada who wanted to share, you know, protect the unborn and wanted to share the um, Knights of Columbus, I think it was in Saskatchewan, had tried civil disobedience, said they wouldn't pay their taxes. The minister of CBA, the minister, though, his name is Romke at the time, was pro-life, but he insisted he was going to pursue them anyway. You know, in other words, he took his orders from Trudeau, who ordered him to make sure that there was no resentment or any dissent. One of the key differences between the U.S. and Canada, Jonathan, is that Canadians, by their nature, are much more deferential to a public authority. I think because we're a colony at one time, we're much more respectful for our British background. 
were not like the Americans. The Americans were wonderful. You know, they don't like something to let you know. You know, they're spirited, but we're much more quieter and, and differential. But the fact that we get 40,000 people out, and every year we used to have a, a demonstration of thousands in front of the Toronto General Hospital, people would come. And it was not something in their nature, you know, because Canadians are not like that. And generally, we just go along with the authority. But the levers of power were held by the Trudeaus, the elites. You know, the, they were running the show, the media. There were wonderful medical doctors who were pro-life. There were other lawyers who were pro-life. You know, good people. But a lot of them were not the kind that would be, um, you know, like an American, you know, speak their mind and show up and let it be known what their views are. Canadians are not like that. And that was one of the problems we always had to contend with. Canadians are much more decent, low-key, you know, don't make public demonstrations as easily. We're just different. And that was a problem that we couldn't use a lot of the Americans, we did try, as you probably know, in the, in the abortion clinic, we had people who tried to block passage and they put in jails and a couple of uh, prominent people were put in jail. And I remember it was a sort of a funny instance. One of my children's teachers was put in jail for breaking into them, and he was late for class. And uh, he came in and apologized. He said, I just got out of jail uh, because I broke into the Morgan Tyler mortuary. And the children and my classmates said, Good show, sir. Very well done. <laughs> they were proud of their teacher. But that was, you know, the time it was exceptional for a Canadian to do that sort of thing, you know, to break into you know, to break the the uh, police restrictions. What year was this when there was 40,000 people on the streets? That would be when the abortion clinic opened up. Gosh, I can't even think when it would be. It would be in the 1970s sometime. Uh, you know, that was it because the, the, it would be sometime in the 19, 19, late 1970s, I think that's occurred early 1980s, probably around then. What was it like to see that many people? Because I, I've seen this in other countries, right? I've been to the American March for Life. I've been to the March for Life in, in the Netherlands. I've been to the March for Life in Austria. But I, I've never seen a march anywhere close to that size in, in Canada. What was it like to see that many people in downtown Toronto to oppose abortion? Well, it was, it was reassuring that we were not alone, those of us who were in the pro-life movement, and people cared. But our difficulty was we were just ordinary Canadians who were concerned. But the elites, the levers of power were held by those who were pro-abortion. And it was reassuring to know that Canadians cared. And they did it by going against their, you know, their their instincts, as it were, to be low-key and appropriately deferential to authority. But it was nice to see that. I think now it would be much more difficult to get those 40,000 people out because they've been so suppressed and so ridiculed and so treated with such contempt because they have a view that diverges from the, uh, you know, the politically correct narrative. But it was, it was reassuring to see 
and and it would be you know it wasn't just in in Toronto but it would be in Winnipeg there would be a demonstration or there'd be one in Edmonton or there'd be one in Vancouver people were you know the pro-life movement no matter what has happened to us will not be stamped out it will always be there and always causing a disruption of the popular political correct narrative you can never stop the concern of pro-life people and they'll always be in every country in the world you can see spain or france the pro-life people are there ireland they're doing their job and um, nothing will stop them they'll go on regardless of circumstances and that'll be happening in canada too people are still going on fighting for the unborn you'll never stamp out their their demands and their their concerns for the unborn child but it's can become extremely much more difficult now than it was when i started out thank goodness we never could foresee the future but you know you always were hoping that you change the tide would change and the tide has changed in the united states you know you've got one political party which is totally pro life you've got pro life leaders who will speak you know actually speak for pro life in canada you cannot get a politician to stand up and speak out mainly because of our temperament but because of our political system has developed that the political party leaders control every word uttered by the MPs and you can't get you know like a hide you know the hide amendment you know you got someone who could speak out you can't get a trump in canada because who spoke out for the unborn and went for the march for life because they're all intimidated because they keep saying they're treated with such contempt and also the party leaders control so much of what they say and with uh, Justin Trudeau if we thought his father was authoritarian this young Trudeau is even much more so and centralizing power in the prime minister's office that and his vision is very limited he has no understanding of of many issues but he certainly doesn't understand the pro life issue and so you know and he won't allow anyone who is pro life to even run for parliament if, as a liberal and and that's that is so undemocratic but it's an authoritative streak that he inherited from his father i think that they know best and everybody else is ignorant if they don't go along with him when you look back at at your career in the pro life movement and you're thinking about telling stories to younger people what are what is what is the one story and i'll make this the final question because i've i've taken almost an hour of your time what is what is the one story that always jumps out and and not a political thing but like an experience you had that jumps out to you because i've only been in the movement for a fraction of the time you have and i can already think of these these moments that made it all worth it that really stood out what's one of yours i think the the moment i felt that jumped out at me was the day we brought the petitions the million petitions it, it was an extraordinary experience every province there were 10 cars in a cavalcade and every province every car held a petition from the province and the 10 cars went all through the city of Ottawa came up to the parliament grounds where there were thousands of us waiting and um, the um, flag of every province was was each car and they came up as the boxes and the pro life mp's or many of them 
stood at the steps of Parliament waiting, and the cars were led by a piper. And it was a, a wonderful sunny day. It was May 29th, beautiful sunny day in Ottawa. I think I'll never forget that moment. And it was very... Uh, it was a very moving moment for all of us who had worked that this was a testimony of a million Canadians speaking for the unborn child and the MPs, you know, who were there meeting us. It was raised in the House of Commons that afternoon by unanimous consent. You can only talk to a petition and mention it if you have unanimous consent of the House of Commons, and even the pro-abortion MPs allowed the petition to be read into Hansard in the House of Commons. It was a very fine day for, you know, for our work, and we thought we really had accomplished something, and we did. We showed, we put a mark on the wall that historical, you know, that a million people had, had done this, but it, was, it wasn't enough. And I keep going back to the same thing I'm saying. The elites control Canada. And the elites, I mean the media, the corporations now, the left wing are control Canada. And, and even freedom of speech has been limited since we were involved. And so, you know, we always had hope during the 70s and 80s and 90s that you turn things around. But I don't, now it's much more difficult until we can break through this control, parliamentary control, we can break through the control of the judges and I appointment of judges who are, and I think those are the two significant things we have to be working on. How do we cleave the control of the elites in, in the parliamentary, the party leaders, political system, and how do we cleave or break the control of the judges over our lives? And those are the two impediments at the present time to the pro-life cause. And until we find a solution to those problems, I think we're going to be in a stalemate position. Thanks so much for taking all this time to share your memories with us. It's my pleasure to be here, Jonathan. Thank you for asking me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with veteran pro-life activist Gwen Landel. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to listen to the show. We'll be having a number of interviews on this subject in the coming months. And we really do hope that you'll tag along, that you'll learn from these conversations, and they'll expand your understanding of how we got to this place in Canada and maybe, just maybe, how we can begin to leave it. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. 